Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I think we can agree that the only being better at budgeting your money than you is the government. Think about it. You're only you. That's that's one. But the government has like hundreds of congressmen and congresswomen and congress they thems. They're all sharpening their pencils, methodically, painstakingly looking at every proposed expenditure, working to ensure that your tax dollars are spent in the most efficient, most practical way possible. It's common knowledge that they just wouldn't be able to sleep at night if they thought for one second that they'd wasted even a dime. And if that's not enough, well, the president, the chief executive, jumps into the ring ready to fight the battle on our behalf to determine if there is just anything that we missed. The scrutiny... Oh, 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 what happened? Oh, I just had a terrible dream. Oh, oh, well, my goodness, look at the time. Better get this show on the road. On today's episode, first we're going to buy the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Then we'll get to see the payoff in our search for life. And finally, we'll be expertly taken care of. So, get ready to believe, well, however many things you're told to believe before dinner, grab your crab hammer, and practice saying, wait, that's all they're supposed to do? Now, will this be cash or or charge? Because uh, this trip is going to cost you. Here we go. You open up the classifieds in the newspaper. Oh, wait a minute, I reverted for a minute there. You go to eBay Motors or Auto Trader, and you find the listing for the perfect car. The listing states it's a single owner, low miles, never been abused, perfect everything. You go to take a look at it, hoping it's not someone that's just wanting to do a murder on you. And when you pull up, get out, start walking closer, you do not see what's been described at all. You can clearly see the Bondo trying to hang on for dear life. Looks like someone painted it with Sharpies and you see a rusty outline where the frame used to be. And it's completely trashed inside as well. The owner, who is fessed up finally to being an owner, not the only owner, fires it up and that poor ragged out engine clanks and sputters like the thrashed hunk of metal it is. The question is, are you still interested in taking over ownership? I mean, unless you're a fool, and you're not a fool, are you? I mean, I don't think you're a fool. You do not take ownership of that car. You walk away, probably back away. Head back to the house, with the only satisfaction being that you weren't murdered that day. I think we need to have that same conversation about the science. And no, I'm not talking about Lord Fauci, the liar of Murderham. I'm speaking of science, like the things we purport to know, the things we allegedly observe and test and confirm or disprove, etc., etc., See, found on BeckerNews.com, headline, We Own the Science, WEF member reveals how global elites work with Google to censor critics. Yeah, that's the science I'm talking about. Now, first a caveat. 
I don't know anything about Becker News. This is an article I found on a site that kind of collects conservative-based news, but some of that is really heavily conspiratorial, so you have to kind of pick and choose really carefully what you want to read and deal with. That said, this has a video of this WEF member saying what she said. Just a short clip. So I don't have the overall conversation, but there's plenty there to understand the context. It stands on its own just fine. This was apparently a sit-down Q&A type conversation with the UN Secretary for Global Communications, mm -hmm. Melissa Fleming, who was also a World Economic Forum, or WEF, member. During the WEF's Sustainable Development Impact meeting that was held toward the end of September of this year. During this conversation, she said this. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. So is this true? Does Google now return UN links at the top? Well, I checked. I actually got a few results labeled as ads that seem to be kind of against the myth of man-caused climate change. And then I get NASA, NASA, UN, UN, IPCC, the EPA, etc., etc. This is why I use DuckDuckGo, which, well, when I search for climate change, I get uh, Save the Children, then UN, then NASA, Nat Geo, NASA, NOAA, NASA, NASA, NASA. So. Not as much UN, not a whole lot better. The way that these search engines used to work, or at least they were claimed to work this way, is the most popular results would move to the top. So the more people clicked on a link, the more that link would move up. I get that. The theory is that the most reliable sources should triumph. Then they added in algorithms. Your searches, initially typed in searches, and then they moved to, you know, just listening to everything we say, the sources you click on, the general slant of the sources you prefer, those would somehow figure into the most clicked links and you'd get some sort of a conglomeration of results based on whatever math they programmed in. But now, and this is why people flocked to DuckDuckGo, see what I did there, right? Duck, flocked, duck, anyway, because they wanted unbiased results. Now we get results from those that either pay or more likely those that push the accepted narrative. I'd say that this is like going to a library where they only carry, you know, some books. Oh, well, wait a minute, that's not really wholly inaccurate either. Not anymore. <sighs> like the news, only reporting from one... <sighs> okay, so we're kind of living in an echo chamber here. If you expect to get honest reporting, even from networks like Fox, you're fooling yourself. The time of unbiased information is gone. You need to search out information, test it against what you know to be true, analyze it for logic, and then make your best determination. And that kind of brings us back around to our article. So this crazy lady says that the UN owns the science. Now, 
She might be saying that they've got in their possession what they consider to be the facts about climate change. Or she might be saying that they dictate the global narrative regarding what we think and what we do about climate change. And knowing what I know about the UN and their panel on climate change, I'd say it's the latter rather than the former. The fact that they're just openly admitting that they're in partnership with search engines and social media, etc., and make no mistake, they didn't stop with Google. That fact is scary enough. But the fact that she's openly admitting that they're the arbiters of what's passed off as science is even more frightening. Add to that that the United States funds about 20% of the budget of the UN, and it's headquartered in Midtown Manhattan. The best thing we could do on uh, just so many levels is to get out of the UN and then kick them out of our country. The group, as a whole, hates the United States, hates our Constitution, hates everything that we stand for, or at least what we used to stand for. So why are we spending tax dollars? Why are we allowing them to inhabit our soil? It seems like a reasonable question. But more to the point I want to make, circling back, Gen Psaki style, to my opening to this commentary, what does the science they claim to own actually look like? Is it that cherry single owner ride or the rusted out jalopy on its last legs? See, I'd argue that the science they claim to own is so badly ragged out, so badly thrashed, that at this point, it barely resembles anything we'd recognize as science. So do we want to even try to take possession of this, or should we instead leave the owner's title of this so-called science with them, walk away, and recreate what science actually is? Notice I didn't say create. I said recreate. We want to look at what science means, what it started as, what it should be, and reestablish the real truth-based science. So Merriam-Webster's defines science as, one, knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through scientific method. Or two, such knowledge or such a system of knowledge concerned with the physical world and its phenomena. Science is, by definition, knowledge of all aspects that comprise our world. Science of our current world is observable and testable. That's the scientific method. Then there's science concerning things that aren't testable or observable, but rather must be inferred and interpreted based on what we can see, the evidence, but that interpretation is subject to the biases of our worldviews, so it can be completely accurate or completely inaccurate or anything in between. Answers in Genesis calls this historical science. We must be very careful here. Then, as is the case of something like climate change, we unfortunately have a third kind of science that falls between the two. Science that has a current component that can be tested and observed, but calls on historical science with evidence that must be interpreted based on a worldview, but has no observable data, nothing testable. And with all of this, the scientist that actually does the science must be an honest broker. I've said it many times, give me a data set, I'll give you a half a dozen conclusions that will all be correct and will all contradict each other. The data is only as good as the analyst of the data and the honesty of the analyst. With regard to climate change, they purposefully scrub the data clean of anything that could work against the narrative. They selectively edit data, data that comes in from 
generally unreliable and inconsistent sources, and then they throw in some historical science that's based on what they consider evidence that they interpret using their worldview, you know, that climate change will destroy us all, and so it'd be better to destroy much of humanity rather than risk their own collective neck, and then they vomit out a study, and our politicians pick up the results and recommendations and turn that into policy. Their science, were we to actually define it, is nothing but agenda. It has very little to do with data, observations, tests, history, or knowledge in general. So what should science look like? Well, if you Google the origin of science, you'll get results like encyclopedia.com and see that they categorize science, meaning the study of nature and natural processes, separately from magic and religion. Britannica.com starts their article on the origin of science with, quote, on the simplest level, science is knowledge of the world of nature. It then jumps into evolution. It states that observations of patterns in nature lead to questions, etc. They eventually get to the point where they state, quote, if the history of science is to make any sense whatsoever, it is necessary to deal with the past on its own terms, and the fact is that for most of the history of science, natural philosophers appealed to causes that would be summarily rejected by modern scientists. Spiritual and divine forces were accepted as both real and necessary until the end of the 18th century, and in areas such as biology deep into the 19th century as well. Huh. So what is this saying? It's saying that science was actually started as philosophy, looking at nature, patterns, universal laws, from both a natural and a divine worldview. And it wasn't until deep into the 19th century that the world finally redefined science and religion as their own separate areas, and never the twain shall meet. So where did science actually start? Well, Britannica tells us it started with religion-based philosophy, but the only way you find that is to actually search it. Looking at creation.com, they first distinguish between science and scientism, science being the actual study of things and the use of the scientific method. Scientism is a religion, a very dogmatic, anti-Christ, anti-God, evolution-based religion. They point out that many, not all, but many of the earliest, what we would call scientists today, were Bible-believing Christians. One of the driving forces behind science was, quote, the theologically informed assumption that there are laws of nature promulgated by God and discoverable by human minds. What is thought to be the initial observations that caused these men to question was that the world seemed ordered and repeatable. Knowing the Bible, they knew why it would be that way, but they wanted to understand how it was that way. The Bible reveals that God is a rational, logical, ordered God, that Jesus created everything in the beginning. It tells us the order of the creation. It describes in very general detail all aspects of the entire universe. It tells us how we can know God, how we can see God through his creation, and it tells us how man was created and who we are in this creation. The Creation.com article quotes atheist professor Mike Klimkowski from the University of Colorado Boulder as saying, quote, The issue with creationism intelligent designers is that their view explains nothing, predicts nothing, and is just not useful for a working scientist. It is a waste of time to consider it. 
Now, I'll have to say that is one of the most naive, dismissive statements possible. All worldviews have the ability to predict something, and all worldviews have the ability to explain certain things. His blanket dismissal shows that either he's so brainwashed that he actually believes that, or that he hates the idea of God so much he refuses to believe it. It may be a little both. They point out that the evolutionary atheistic worldview really predicts nothing except for chaos and random chance, and that in itself is not predictable, it's not repeatable, it's, it's just a mess. In fact, if evolution were true, the human mind couldn't be trusted to analyze what's being observed, as how can you trust a brain and consciousness that's been randomly assembled? Now, I found a Wikipedia page listing prominent Christians in science, leaders or founders of various fields throughout history. They admit that this is not a complete list and may never be, but pre-18th century, they have people listed such as Francis Bacon, Galileo, Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, and Isaac Newton, among many others. In the 18th century, you have people like Gottfried Leibniz, Leonard Euler, and Carl Lennius, as well as a dozen more. And the list goes on. You can click the link in the notes to see who, when, and what field of science if you're curious. But as I said, the question I think we need to face that we need to answer is, do we want their science or scientism? Do we want to take ownership, or should we leave them with their godless, severely compromised, error-laden, agenda-driven version of science? Let them dabble as they'd like while we back up, acknowledge our Creator, recognize His creation, and start doing actual science with the correct worldview, easily debunking their baseless belief system at every turn. As with many aspects of our current world and the ever-widening gulf between worldviews, I just don't think we can or even should attempt to reform and fix some of these systems anymore. We need to get back to the Constitution, back to the Bill of Rights, back to the Bible, back to real economic theory, back to real science. From at least a human standpoint, acknowledging that God can do anything he wants, I think these systems are too far gone, too badly broken. We don't need to try to fix the mess that they're currently in. And we see this with organizations like Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries International, and Institute for Creation Research. They haven't abandoned all of the science that's been done. They're not reinventing the wheel or throwing the baby out with the bathwater or circling around the same buoy. Rather, they've taken the evidence that's been discovered, the science that's been done, applied a biblical worldview, and corrected areas of science that by necessity require a God-based worldview in order to understand what's being analyzed. In the perfect world, both scientific worldviews would be given equal time. It would be transparent as to their worldview, the data, the assumptions, and the analysis, allowing the world to determine the most plausible explanation for the various scientific discoveries and fields. Unfortunately, what we see is exactly what we would expect. The atheistic worldview is promoted, the Christian worldview is maligned and mocked. But the reality is the Christian worldview is doing actual science actually looking at all possible data to support or disprove a hypothesis, and then proceeding through the scientific method. And the Christian worldview is basing that science on the only source of true, unchanging truth available to man. When the other side does any scientific analysis of any kind and cites natural laws or universal laws, repeatability, order, structure, etc., they are necessarily borrowing from the Bible and the created order of God. True science just admits that fact. So, does the UN own the science? 
Yeah, they absolutely own their science, and they own the ramifications and the consequences of their science as well. And in my opinion, they can keep it. Christians should be focused on conducting actual science rather than trying to acquire an atheistic-based quasi-science that's full of errors and incorrect conclusions. Christians own the truth. Our focus should be on hypothesizing, analyzing, and promoting that. Nobody likes a false positive. This is why you get second opinions. This is why you take 37 up-your-nose-touch-your-brain COVID tests because you don't want a false positive or a pos-falsative or a positive-negative or any combination of uh, words. You want a positive-positive. Unfortunately, in our diligent and extensive and expensive search for extraterrestrials, alien life forms, and intelligent life on other worlds, all we seem to get is false positives. Now, we know that evolution is true. We know that it only takes some random chemicals and some sort of a spark to get it all started. We know that there are infinity planets that are Earth-like and that science-talking people say could support life. And yet we just can't seem to find anything. What I find really funny is that we're in a constant state of expectation of being, or even that we already have been, visited by superintelligent, highly evolved alien life forms. You know, shooting through the wormholes or speeding along at the speed of light or greater, whatever. But we are looking on planets and moons in our solar system for a microbe, or even just chemicals that might one day turn into a microbe. A case in point found on interestingengineering.com headline, New simulations show that Saturn's moon, Enceladus, may harbor extraterrestrial life. Okay, I want to do a little setup work first here, just so you know where we are in this universe of ours. So the Earth is 93 million miles from the Sun. The size of our Earth, the speed of rotation, the tilt of the axis, and the distance from the Sun, as well as a variety of other things, make Earth the sweetest of sweet spots for sustaining life, or at least so say scientists. Now, Saturn is 886.7 million miles from the Sun, so, you know, just a tad farther out there. Earth runs on average between about 10 and 100 degrees F. Now, of course, that's going to go up by about a tenth of a degree in the next 100,000 years because you want your cars and air conditioning and that'll destroy all life on the planet, or so we're led to believe. Saturn runs about minus 300 degrees F. You'll want to layer. And maybe get those gloves with some some of that really good Thinsulate stuff, right? Uh, just a side note, the coldest recorded temperature on Earth ever was about minus 128.5 degrees F in the Russian Vostok station in 1983. It, but remember now, we're not talking about Saturn, we're talking about its moon, Enceladus, which at its observed hottest point at the South Pole is slightly cooler than Saturn, and it gets as cold as minus 340 degrees F. However, on that South Pole, you know, the warm region, there are apparently geothermal vents that blow a jet of icy mist hundreds of miles into space at about 800 miles per hour. Some of this mist contains silica nanograins. And, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but, but these are formed from the interaction of water and rock at about 200 degrees F. Ergo, there's a good chance that under the nice, crispity, crunchity, icy crust, 
there's liquid water, you know, from the geothermal heat and, and be still my heart, possibly underwater life. Again, this is basic common knowledge, and I will beg your forgiveness for talking down to you. Back to our facts. Earth is about 8,000 miles across. Enceladus is slightly smaller, about 310 miles across. It also has a mass about 680 times less than our moon. Gravity on Earth is about 9.8 meters per second squared, whereas gravity on Enceladus is about 0.11 meters per second squared. So for comparison, my 600-pound life on Earth would be my 6.75-pound life on Enceladus. Now, you'd look the same and be just as unhealthy and die just as early, but you'd feel light as a feather until your head exploded from no breathable oxygen or you fry to a crisp from no sun-blocking atmosphere or you froze to death from the extreme cold. The Earth has an atmosphere made up of about 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.9% argon, and 0.1% other. Enceladus has some sort of an atmosphere, but it's too small to really hold on to an atmosphere. So the theory is that it's generating it from either the surface or the interior, kind of continually blowing it into space. So it doesn't really have an atmosphere like we would think of it today. Now, as you know, I'm a firm believer in following as many rabbit trails as I can. I looked up our moon, you know, 680 times the mass of Enceladus. We know it doesn't have an atmosphere because it's not able to hold one due to gravity. Well, it turns out that's only partly right. Our moon, says science, used to have an atmosphere for about 70 million years. So, you know, just a blip on the radar, somewhere between 3.9 and 1 billion years ago. This, of course, was due to volcanic activity on the moon, spewing gases comprised of carbon monoxide, sulfur, and water into the space around the moon. <laughs> Did someone say vacation destination? Now, this ended a long time ago because as the moon cooled or stopped evolving or ran out of stuff, I don't really know, I got bored reading that article, it stopped putting things into space and the atmosphere drifted away. I mention this because that's basically the same theory they have for Enceladus, that the atmosphere, which is allegedly made up of about 91% water vapor, 4% nitrogen, 3.2% CO2, 1.7% methane, and 0.1% other, is spewing out of the little fella into the space around it, causing a quasi-atmosphere that constantly needs replenishing. Now, one question, if I may... Wouldn't something this small basically run out of internal stuff eventually to spew out? I mean, well, as luck would have it, this moon apparently formed later, way more recently. It may only be about a billion years old or less. And at the current measured rate of mass loss being shot into space, one billion years would only cause a mass loss of about 10%. We got plenty of time still. Still, though, something doesn't seem to make sense between our moon and this one. But I'm no astrologist, so what do I know? A few other interesting facts. With the creation of the International Space Station, you know, the one that Russia is going to fling into the ocean if we don't play ball, we've been able to carry out a variety of experiments and also gather data on the astronauts that have lived there for extended periods of time. From some of the more recent research, it's been found that living in basically zero Gs, or at least very little gravitational force, affects a number of human systems, including eyesight, blood flow, bone and muscle density, etc. When testing on worms, they found that this absence of gravity actually affected about 1,000 genes that make up these worms. Most of the changes were subtle, although 
I would say genetic changes, I don't know, are any of them really subtle? But the more highly affected were the neurons, which are used by the body to transmit information between the brain and the nervous system. It, I mean, it's, it's almost like we weren't designed to live in space or on other planets. Kind of like we were designed to live right here on this planet. But who am I to talk of how natural selection and random chaotic chance designed us? That's up to the impersonal force of evolution that has literally no creative powers or capability of complex or even basic thought processes to reason out and decide how we should evolve. One last little factoid I think is important here. Enceladus was named after the Greek god giant of the same name, who was, and, and again, I apologize for talking down to you, who was the offspring of Gaia, you know, Mother Earth, and of course, say it with me, Uranus. Now, I honestly don't care about this fact. It means nothing. It contributes nothing. But again, being honest, I couldn't pass up putting it in here because of fairly obvious reasons. Moving on. Now, to me, and this is just me, the capital S with scare quotes, science, keeps looking for life on other planets, right? Again, we expect to be visited by highly advanced intelligent beings, but we look for microbes. So to me, if evolution were a plausible theory, which it's not, and it was proven to be correct, which it hasn't been, nor will it ever be, as it's a fantasy for weak-minded, godless people, would we even know what to look for? Science is looking for the building blocks of life, as they've determined them to be for Earth-based human evolution, based on, of course, faulty assumptions, weak theories, and gigantic leaps of logic, as well as huge blinders so as to not see the gaping flaws in their theories. But on a moon, I mean, let's just pick one at random. Uh, let's say Saturn's moon Enceladus, which has very little gravity, cold temperatures like nothing we've ever seen, an atmosphere of sorts, but devoid of oxygen and made up of nothing like our atmosphere, and the fact that all of this life creation is supposed to be taking place underground, away from any sunlight with no lightning to spark it into spontaneous being, why would we think that evolution would work the same, or even use the same chemicals and compounds, or even start at the same kind of cellular microbial level as is the, silly, theory of Earth-based evolution? Simply put, from a logical worldview, evolution on a moon like Enceladus would not, could not, be the same as on Earth. Dan, I am. But getting back to our article, don't tell the team of scientists that are all giddy about recently discovered new evidence, right? We don't want them to know this stuff. One of the researchers, Dr. Christopher Glenn Glean from Southwest Research Institute, globally recognized, quote, as an expert in extraterrestrial oceanography, said that they've run some simulations that, quote, show that the moon's ocean should have an abundance of dissolved phosphorus, an essential ingredient for life here on Earth. Okay, okay, wow, there's so much there. Did you catch it all? Let's compare our scorecard, shall we? First, how do you get a title like expert in extraterrestrial oceanography? That in itself is just nonsensical. Oh, but I'll play their game as I like games because I am the self-proclaimed intergalaxial expert in scientific buffoonery. Uh, point B, I think you know my feelings on simulations. I know you know my feelings on simulations. A simulation is nothing but a computerized guess. You take some things you know, you plug in a number of assumptions, generally biased toward what you want as an outcome, and then you tweak the inputs until you arrive at your desired output. And even if you're not biased, 
the simulations by the very design require the input of a number of assumptions due to the unknowns. And with a tiny moon we could never go to, 800 million miles away, with only some data from a few passes of a satellite, there have to be a number of assumptions made in order to simulate absolutely anything. Roman numeral number three, the simulations show that the moon's ocean, which in itself is somewhat of an assumption based on the fact that we don't actually know there's an ocean under the icy, buttery, flaky crust, I digress, the simulations show that the moon's ocean should have an abundance of dissolved phosphorus. <laughs> should have. Well, that clinches it for me, right? I should also be six feet tall, but there's a fair distance between should and is. As in, I should be six feet tall, I is five foot eight, and I will be until I die, so says my driver's license. Point four, they have to take as fact the evolutionary theory of the origin of life, and that phosphorus, since it's a key component to the sugar phosphate backbone of DNA, and think of that backbone as the two sides of the DNA ladder that the rungs attach to, they have to assume that the mere presence of phosphorus means it would spontaneously create these backbones in order for DNA to form. And fifth, again, if, and that's a huge, blatantly incorrect if, but if evolution happened the way they said it did on Earth, as I said, why would we ever think that evolution would or would have to or even could follow the same process on a frozen space orb that is completely different than Earth? But the excitement grows around this ice rock hosting potential life because upon analysis of the icy plume shooting into space, they found that whatever that ocean is under the pan-style crust of the moon, it, quote, contains almost all the basic requirements of life as we know it, says Dr. Gl Glein. Ooh, almost. Ooh, <laughs> it's basically everything we need. Gl went on, quote, while the bioessential element phosphorus has yet to be identified directly, our team discovered evidence for its availability in the ocean beneath the moon's icy crust. Oh, wait. Okay, hold on. So it's essential. They've not identified it. They have literally no idea if phosphorus exists on the moon or not, but they've, and now follow this, quote, discovered evidence for its availability. Let me put this in hillbilly speak for you. It ain't got no phosphorus in it. Yeah, what Glean is saying is that phosphorus must be there because they need it to be there, so they simulated it being there. You know, problem solved. Now, he went on to tout the simulations he and his team modeled, saying those simulations show that, quote, the underlying geochemistry has an elegant simplicity that makes the presence of dissolved phosphorus inevitable, reaching levels close to or even higher than those in modern Earth's seawater. What this means for astrobiology is that we can be more confident than before that the ocean of Enceladus is habitable. <laughs> more confident than before. Well, that's literally saying not anything at all. This is just an amazing spin. If we added once upon a time at the beginning and they lived happily ever after at the end, we wouldn't have a better story than what we're currently getting. Now, the author of the article states, quote, interior water worlds are much more common than worlds like Earth, where the ocean makes up much of the planet's surface. This is because planets like Earth must land in a narrow habitable zone away from their sun. On the other hand, interior water worlds hide their oceans between thick sheets of ice. 
But that doesn't mean microbial life can't reside in those oceans. I mean, this really seems like they're begging you to just believe them, doesn't it? It has an air of desperation to it. It can be true. Stop laughing at me. I'm telling. It just amazes me at the lengths we go as creations of and image bearers of God to deny our creator, even though everything we instinctively know and everything we see demands a creator. A creation doesn't demand chaotic random chance. It demands an intelligent, powerful creator. Genesis 1, starting at verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. See, this is when the earth, which was already placed in the habitable zone, had our sun and our moon placed in their proper locations, as well as the other suns that we call stars, and all the other planets. And I'd feel pretty comfortable saying that this is almost positively including Enceladus. Now, why did God do this? Well, we get the practical reason. All of these things are there for signs. Not astrological signs, but seasons and days and years, and the sun and moon specifically to give us light. And clearly, going back to very early in our history, the sky has been used for all sorts of things. I mean, think navigation or calendars, etc., etc. Now, a more spiritual reason is for mankind to have even more proof that there is a God. As David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, God does not have to give us actual physical proof, as we are to walk by faith, not by sight. And as Jesus told Thomas after showing him his pierced hands and the hole from the spear that was thrust into his side, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, God owes us nothing. He's required to prove nothing, but he has given us more than enough actual physical proof to conclusively say that there is an all-powerful creator God that has done all of this. And then most importantly, God created for his glory. Despite what the fluffy Christianity is only about lovey love love sentiment that pervades the world today, God was not and is not up in heaven just lonely and forlorn, pining for someone to just like him and spend time with him. God doesn't have our pictures on his refrigerator. He doesn't just think of us as the bee's knees. God, despite what we're having fed to us on a weekly basis, is complete in himself. He's lacking nothing. He needs nothing. If he just couldn't live without us, he wouldn't be God. God cannot lack something. He cannot be incomplete if he doesn't have something outside of himself. So why did God create? Well, because it brought and brings him glory. And before you think that's arrogant or egotistical of God, as some people do try to heretically claim, if God isn't supposed to glorify himself, if it's wrong of him to do all things in order to bring himself glory, well, riddle me this, Batman, who is he supposed to give glory to? If there's a being that God should direct his glory to, well, then that being is now God.
In Isaiah 43, God is reiterating his promise to Israel that they are his people and he is their God. He says through the prophet, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, for whose glory did God create? It was for his glory. Now, in Revelation 4, we get a interesting glimpse through John's eyes into the throne room of heaven. We see some very odd creatures that are around the throne of God saying repeatedly and eternally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And in response to these creatures, the 24 elders would fall down before him who was seated on the throne in worship, responding, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. How much time, effort, and money are we wasting as a country, as a planet, working hard to deny the existence of God? What could we be doing with this time, money, and effort to help our fellow man to glorify God? And let me wrap up with this. Let's say we actually found microbes on Enceladus. Let's say they're exactly like microbes on Earth. Let's say they're completely different forms of life than what we find on Earth. What does that prove? In fact, does that fact in and of itself prove or disprove evolution? Or prove or disprove God? The evolutionist, willingly blind and ignorant of the obvious design in all of creation, will say that these microbes evolved. See? This proves it. But for the creationist, those of us that can look out upon creation, that can look at the immensity of it, and yet the complexity of even the smallest microorganism, of the cell, of the atom, and understand and admit that this had to be designed. There's no logical way that any of this could come about through explosions, heat, slime, lightning, random chance, chaos, and natural selection. For those of us with our eyes open, we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that God created those microbes and put them there, and he did it for his glory. If we, earth-based image bearers of God, ever understand why God did it or how it brings him glory, great. But if we don't, oh well. That doesn't change the fact that if microbes exist or if life forms exist outside of this earth, God created them, God placed them, and to God be the glory, great things he hath done. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Welcome back to the American Genesis. You've wandered your way into episode 12, which is also part four of our look at the Constitution. In three episodes, we've made it all the way to about halfway into Article 1. But by the end of this episode, we'll be, we'll be closer to getting ready to almost start on Article 2. Now, but don't worry. With regard to the articles, Article 1 is the longest-winded one of the bunch, and for good reason, as Article 1 is what outlines the legislative branch of our government, which arguably is, or at least it should be, the power broker of our constitutional representative republic system. Notice that I didn't call us a democracy, as, you know, every Democrat and a lot of clueless Republicans and pretty much all of the media likes to call us. A democracy is just a step away from socialism, which is why they use it. We are a republic, and there is a difference, and there's a reason why, and I'll 
cover that eventually. But for now, let's dive back into our look at the Constitution, starting with Section 6 of Article 1. We read, The Senators and Representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. They shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. No senator or representative shall, during the time for which he was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which shall have been created, or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time, and no person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. Okay, this one's fairly straightforward. Those that have been elected into office, either as representative or a senator, need to be paid for their service. In many cases, if not all cases to begin with, these were men that were farmers and business owners and the like. Many were men with families and other responsibilities. As I've said before, the call to public service was one of duty that carried with it a large amount of annoyance and inconvenience. So as with anything, paying them for their service, that's the right thing to do. In fact, if you look back at the salaries of Congress from 1789 to today, I'd at least surmise that it was around 1855 when the role of congressman went from public servant to public career politician and federal employee. I found a Wikipedia page, you know, so you know it's good, that shows the salary or the pay for congressmen throughout history. Up to 1855, they were allowed a per diem. Equating it to $2020, which this page purports to do, it puts the per diem at about $90 to $135 per day, depending on the year. At the current rate of service of 150 to 165 days per year, yeah, that's, that's all they're in session for, that would equate to somewhere in the $18,000 to $20,000 per year range. In fact, in 1815, for a couple years, they did go to a per annum basis at $21,210 per year in 2020 dollars, $1,500 per year in 1815 dollars. Then for some reason, they went back to per day until 1855. Up until 1871, the salary equated to about $85,000 per year in 2020 dollars. Then it doubled in 1871 to about $162,000 per year. From that point on, the equivalent salary ranged from $114,000 to just shy of $300,000 per year when equating it back to $2020. Today, the member's salary is $174,000, with the last raise being in 2009. Now, is that a good salary? Is it a fair salary? Well, that's up to you to decide. Personally, I don't have a problem with it being that high from a career standpoint. My issue is more with it being a career at all. Personally, I think, keep it at 174000 but divide that into a typical work year. So about 260 days, I'll be generous and give them 40 days of holidays and vacation days, and then make it a per diem or, or even a per hour type of thing, where they have to fill out a time card and track what they do day to day. You know, accountability. That would give them $790 per eight-hour day, about $100 per hour for every day, every hour that they put in real 
honest, and of course you have to put quotes around that, but honest work. I think once we started tracking this and paying for actual work, we'd start to shed some of these uh, career politicians as it wouldn't be as lucrative for them, or it would become even more obvious the grift that these bums are, are grifting. Anyway, Section 6 also says that unless they actually commit a crime, they can't just be arrested for petty things or, most importantly, for speech. I do agree that they need to be able to freely throw ideas about the direction of the country out into Congress, no matter how bad or good or even traitorous these ideas seem to be. We cannot, or at least we should not, be imprisoning anyone for political worldviews and speech. Now, this was put in as a specific protection from turning into the system that we fought to break away from. Finally, they threw in a clause to remove the conflict of interest. If you're an elected congressman, you can't be working in another federal position. Being paid by the Treasury to vote on many things, including other positions that are paid by the Treasury, seems like it would be tempting to be, I don't know, slightly biased if you were working for both. Again, the founders did not want the temptations of conflicts of interest to test the integrity of those that are supposed to be of the highest moral character. Moving on to Section 7. All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it becomes a law, be presented to the President of the United States. If he approve, he shall sign it, but if not, he shall return it with his objections to that House in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider it. If after such reconsideration, two-thirds of that House shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent together with the objections to the other House, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered. And if approved by two-thirds of that House, it shall become a law. But in all such cases, the votes of both Houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of the persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered on the journal of each House respectively. If any bill shall not be returned by the President within ten days, Sundays excepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be a law, in like manner as if he had signed it, unless the Congress by their adjournment prevent its return, in which case it shall not be a law. Every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and House of Representatives may be necessary, except on a question of adjournment, shall be presented to the President of the United States, and before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him, or being disapproved by him, shall be repassed by two-thirds of the Senate and House of Representatives, according to the rules and limitations prescribed in the case of a bill." I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Just a few notes. And these are things that you may already know, so I'll highlight them quickly. The system was set up so that no one entity had ultimate power. You've undoubtedly heard the term checks and balances. Well, this is it. So all bills have to be approved by both houses before they have a chance of being made into law. These days, they're are some varying rules on how many votes certain kinds of bills need, but in general, when both houses pass the bill, it then goes to the president. The president can sign it or veto it, but is not allowed to just sit on the bill and, you know, just kind of hope it goes away. 
If he vetoes the bill, it goes back to the originating House, where the bill can either be killed, or if two-thirds of the members vote to override the veto, it would then proceed to the other House with the same options, and if both Houses override the veto, the bill is law. One caveat to bill origination is that the House of Representatives, those members that are fighting exclusively for the American citizens, is the sole holder of the purse strings. All budget bills related to either side of the accounting ledger must originate from the House. And I also want to point out that the longest a president could sit on a bill is 10 days unless Congress drops it on his desk and runs away. I mean, because that's not playing fair. But those 10 days do not include Sundays. Now, I can't quite put my finger upon why that might be, but I'm sure there's some reason they would leave that specific day as a day that didn't count as a work day, like a day of rest almost. Uh, no idea. I mean, they can't get Chick-fil-A on that day. For some odd reason, they don't want our money on that day either. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Probably nothing. Section 8 is the big one. This is where the founders did a data dump into the roles and duties of Congress. So here goes. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To borrow money on the credit of the United States. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes to establish an uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States, to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, to establish post offices and post roads, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war, grant letters of marquee and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such a district not exceeding 10 miles square as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of congress become the seat of the government of the united states and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts magazines arsenals dockyards and other needful buildings and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or office thereof. Okay, 
So the Congress as a whole is by design the power center of the government. Now, what we're told and led to believe is that the president is the ultimate key master these days. But in reality, and we'll get back to his duties, he's just a check in the check and balances. But with regard to the direction and functioning of this country, that's all he's supposed to be. And that makes sense, as the Senate was originally appointed by the elected state officials to look after the country through the lens of their states, and the House was to look after the country through the lens of the people. And if the states agree with the people, and vice versa, that's what is considered good for our country, with the top executive there to determine if there is anything that maybe looks squidgy. The Congress has charge of taxes, debt, commerce, currency, mail, roads, copyrights and patents, hearings, piracy, creation and maintenance of the military, declarations of war, maintenance of federal military bases and associated on state-owned lands, and enforcement of the Constitution and all federal laws. That's basically what that boils down to. So I started with the quote, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe you can see why now. This quote is generally attributed to Lord John Edward Acton in a letter he wrote in 1887 to Bishop Mandel, where he said, quote, Power tends to corrupt, and the absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. But going back a little bit farther, it appears that the first recorded origination can be basically attributed to William Pitt the Elder, the Earl of Chatham and the former Prime Minister of England from 1766 to 1778. He's the man that Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is named for. And he said in Parliament, quote, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. Now, regardless of who phrased the term that we use today, you can see that the Congress, in theory, holds the ultimate power in the land. The checks should be the president and the Supreme Court, as well as some other federal courts, at least to some degree. But if you look at our system today, you can see that what we have is a political mess. The Congress has passed, since inception, something over 30,000 bills that have been signed into law. What's interesting is that I couldn't find a website with an accurate count, including federal government sites, but I found multiple sites that said an accurate count just can't be made. On one legal site, they state that since World War II, when these kinds of records started being kept, on average, in each of the two-year chunks of legislative session, they're adopting between four and six million words of new legislation. How is the average citizen supposed to keep up with this? <laughs> Trick question. We're not. This is death by a million or six million cuts. I've heard the statement before that everybody in the country is a felon if the government decides that we are because we've all broken many, many laws that nobody knows exists. The first clause in Section 8 is generally termed the General Welfare Clause. This empowers the Congress to enact a large number of bills, especially those that pertain to collecting or spending money, which is absolutely everything they do, for the general welfare of the country. That, of course, is defined by their worldview of welfare and of good for the country. This, for example, is what allowed Obamacare to be made into law and erroneously upheld by the Supreme Court. This clause needs to be amended and strictly clarified, as it has contributed to the corruption in our system due to the defining of it as the do-whatever-you-want clause. The founders were very good, but they were not prophets. Unfortunately, the evil of man is very good at looking for loopholes, especially when power and control are at stake. 
But what we see is exactly what we see throughout all of history, and it's exactly what the Bible warns us about. The corruption that money brings, that power brings, that control brings, is absolute. We see God's warning that he gives to Samuel to relate to the Israelites of what a king will be and what a king will do. We see the evil sense of power from the Pharaoh of Egypt enacted on the Israelites at the time of Moses. We see the man with many possessions choosing his wealth over following Jesus. We're told that we cannot serve both God and money. We see the corruption of King Nebuchadnezzar even after being warned as he looked over his kingdom and rather than give God praise for the incomprehensible blessings, he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And as he was saying it, God humbled him and made him as an animal for seven periods of time. We see the battle that David had with the corrupting influence of power, and even more so that Solomon had. And the list just goes on and on. As much as the founders tried to put in a system that would check the corruption, despite the warning of the potential evils of forming and falling into political parties by George Washington, we find ourselves in a place where those in power have once again become the elite, the feudal lords, enacting their will on the people, despite the wishes of the people. Of course, we're less than innocent in this as we keep voting in the same slugs because, oh, I know that name, or because, oh, they promise they'll give me more money. So we are at fault here. We have the ability to totally remake all of Congress every six years, which is why the founders didn't put in term limits. They didn't expect the American people to degrade into the dumbest society in the history of the planet. They kind of thought we'd see the corruption starting and kick the public servant out before they can do damage to the country, and more importantly, before the allure of power, money, and control totally blackened their heart and destroyed their soul. But again, I say, uh, here we are. The power structure is heavily politicized. The Congress is nothing but an arm of whoever the president is doing whatever the president wants, as long as doing so doesn't elevate the chance of them losing their power. The only checks left are political party division, resulting in lame duck sessions, and sort of the Supreme Court, but even that is heavily political rather than being heavily constitutional. But, kind of getting ahead of myself here, we'll get to the executive and judicial branches soon. I've said before in this podcast, and I've said before to other actual face-to-face humans, I don't know how someone could go through life without some faith, any faith at all, to hold on to. And further, knowing the basic operations of all other faiths, I have no idea how people can make it in life without a faith based on the Bible and Jesus Christ. The world is a mess. The United States is not an exception to this. Not anymore. Now, it may get better. It may not. I don't know. I have no idea. But I know that no matter what, Jesus will never fail. He is in complete control as he is sovereign, and his plan is being executed to perfection. And that makes all things that are done for his glory. In all of this, my role doesn't change. Regardless of the external circumstances, regardless of the corrupt numbskulls in our government, no matter the corruption of what I still maintain as a God-inspired constitution, my role doesn't change. And that's one major reason I can sleep soundly at night. So on the next episode of the American Genesis, we'll finish up Article 1. I... I know you're skeptical, but I promise, and I openly refuse to promise anything to anyone unless I can deliver, God willing, of course. And then we'll actually get into Article 2. So until next time, keep the faith, no matter what's going on around you.
And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.